Welcome to GLAD, your spatial fix for geography, life, and data. This podcast is brought to you by the Science of Cities and Regions program at the Alan Turing Institute. I'm Rachel, your host for today, and I'm joined by my co-host, Danny. Hello. And Levi. Hi. We do something a little different every episode, but there's always a healthy dose of all things geography, life, geography, life, and data. And today we're once again in our virtual studio, but trying out some new recording technology. Can you tell? For this episode, we're joined by David O'Sullivan to talk about his forthcoming book, Computing Geographically, Bridging GI Science and Geography. We're pretty excited about this episode and the book. Many of you will know David as co-author of Geographic Information Analysis and for his research on complexity, simulation, and, well, lots and lots of interesting research in geocomputation and geographical analysis space. Uh, But rather than doing a dry rundown, which would be long. Uh, I wonder if I can turn it over to you, David, to tell our audience a little bit about you, who you are, your background, what you're interested in, what you're interested in now, um, and maybe, maybe the exciting kinds of questions that get you out of bed in the morning. We love stories about how people got into geography and data. Um, hi, Rachel and Levi and Danny. Um, and uh, it's great to be on here. I've enjoyed um many of the podcasts over the last couple of years. Um, so it's, it's fun to be here. Um, yeah, I'm David O'Sullivan. Uh, I live now in New Zealand. I'm originally from Ireland, uh, Belfast, in fact, which I only mention really because um, Belfast's a kind of a complicated place to come from geographically. And I think it has had on reflection, more than a little to do with how I've ended up being interested in some of the things I've been interested in. Um, as far as my relationship to geography, um, my first degree was engineering. I worked as an engineer for several years, and then I kind of randomly bumped into GIS and GPS, um, of all things, at a at a image processing trade show that I was sent to in my engineering job and I kind of picked up this magazine about image processing and it had this article in it about what the Norwegian State Mapping Agency was doing with GIS and GPS to make maps in the 1990s, the mid-1990s. I got back from that, it was in Birmingham, the the trade show, I got back to London where I was living at the time and Jill, my uh, much wiser, better half, uh, sort of said, well you seem a lot more interested in that than you do in your job, uh, you should do something about that. And one thing led to another. I ended up doing a master's in cartography and geoinformation technology at University of Glasgow. And once I was back at university, I'd been a really bad student the first time around. Um, but back at university, I kind of just loved it. And one thing led to another. And I ended up doing a PhD at the uh, Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis at University College London with Mike Bassey. I believe I was the first PhD to come out of CASA, first of God knows yeah. how many PhDs <laughs> that <have> subsequently <laughs> emerged, emerged from there. Yeah. I, must, I must be the, yeah, the yeah. Uh, inaugural, the inaugural PhD, PhD of first of a hundred or more, uh, God knows how many they've been since. Um, and uh, I guess CASA PhDs were hot property in the early days. Maybe they still are. I, I, that meant I won, you know, I 
wound up with an assistant professor at Penn State and subsequently University of Auckland and Berkeley and currently perhaps not for very much longer, um, at Waka Victoria University of Wellington here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, and I guess the reason I was, a, uh, the reason CASA was a big draw was Mike Bassey's work on fractal cities and complexity. And that was very much the, the vein in which I did my PhD work. And it's kind of something that I've, has kind of threaded through, I think everything that I've done. Um, I think maybe the engineer in me has always been interested in how stuff fits together and how stuff works. Yeah. How mm. systems, interconnected systems of stuff kind of function in one way or another. And, and maybe it's not right to apply that to the world more broadly, but that's nevertheless, I think that's a kind of a frame that, that I've adopted. Um, and so simulation modeling has been kind of central. Um, I've kind of remained faithful to the whole complexity thing even as it's kind of stopped being the cool new thing and um i think that kind of threads through i suppose my career is really marked by the three books geographic information analysis spatial simulation and now this one i hope and uh, all three of them kind of i think mm -hmm. share that um sort of uh, dna yeah uh, and your interests, I'm kind of curious about what, if you were to describe your interests in the past and how well they align with interests now, but what would you say makes you most excited across the entire field of geography, perhaps, not just geography and data? Um, well, I, I guess this maybe relates to the book in a way. Um, I mean, we're going to get to that, obviously, but uh, I, I often joke that I, if I were in a position to endow a chair, of, uh, in, uh, I would endow a chair and stuff. <laughs> I, I, I think of myself as a just a broadly interested in pretty much everything. Um, and, you know, geography is a, not a bad place to be if that's what you're interested in. Um, Mm. Uh, to try to be a little bit more specific, I think the thing that, that kind of really struck me early uh, as I was kind of engaging geography, you know, coming to it from outside, I just loved all those early, like 60s and 70s quantitative geography texts with their much, you know, their kind of artfully realized, often hand-drawn diagrams uh, you know, they're not as um, precise and um, accurate in some sense as the illustrations in in contemporary books, but, but they were just full of ideas. And it's that kind of, you know, the visuality of that and the spatiality of that and the pattern and the connection to process, the implied connection to process. I mean, I, I think we've moved well beyond, you know, any notion that, process and pattern of any kind of one-to-one -one relation but that the kind of romance of that idea mm. that there might be a, a way of inferring process from pattern is kind of still the thing that um, uh, excites me I'm kind of really interested in pattern in all its um, manifestations <laughs> geographical manifestations and that and that does come on the book. We, we're going to get into the book in a second, but before that, the first question I need to ask you, do you keep a copy of that magazine that turned you on to GIS? <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't <laughs> obvious that it was going to become 
<laughs> become oh, that. I so think, you should be really I think collecting it, random magazines on the odd chance that they. Yeah, I think uh, I think it life. would be it would be a yeah that would be would be a lot of <laughs> magazines sitting around the place. It was I think it was called I think it was called image processing because you know image processing. Okay, and it would well, have been for an easy Google search. It would have been nineteen ninety. Six. So, how many magazines called image processing could there possibly have been yeah. in 1996? Yeah. Well, maybe pass for a, a enthusiast <laughs> podcast listener. There was a there was a there was an assignment in our in the cartography course in the degree at Glasgow where we had to kind of review the design of a topographic map series. And I picked Norway because yeah. of its, uh, right. it was the Norwegian okay. state mapping <laughs> agency that it got me there. Uh, I thought maybe Excellent. it would be, uh, isn't it in Douglas Adams and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the end when it turns out that the whole earth has been designed, that it's the coastline of Norway that they've... The, the fjords. <laughs> okay, you're, you're both competing geographically, it comes out. <laughs> Is it out yet? No. Well, it is, it is, on when I'm, you're listening I'm, to this. I've is, been. But... I, I. I'm informed by the publisher, Guildford Press, that twelve copies are winging their. Well, I'm actually informed by USPS <laughs> parcel tracking that they left New York right. earlier today. So they're on their way Good. here. The Excellent. Physical. So probably when this drops. Uh, people will be able to, to get their hands well, on I, it. Well, I, Amazon <laughs> claim they have four copies remaining, so it oh, must be purchasable okay. at this point. All right. I, I assume either that or it's... You so know, almost Amazon sold out already. Aside. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, can you give us the elevator pitch? So one minute, two minutes, if it's a really tall skyscraper that we're going on the elevator, uh. what it is about <laughs> and, and why people should read it. Well, I mean, if I was good at elevator pitches, I wouldn't be an <laughs> academic. So, uh, fair. Let's just uh, pretend you were. <laughs> uh, well, I guess the big the big picture is that um, it baffles me. It baffles me now, and it's baffled me for a long time that geography and geographical information science um, kind of barely seem to occupy the same building. <laughs> they, don't, they, they don't really. Uh, they seem almost dissociated from one another in many ways. I mean, often they inhabit the same departments in universities, but, but they're really intellectually quite separate. And so the book, the goal of the book really is to, as the subtitle suggests, is to bridge that divide because I don't think it's uh, healthy for either field. I think it's, um, you know, bad for geography to be sort of uh, sidelining computation and all that it implies in the present at, at the present moment and over the last several decades for that matter mm. uh, sort of pushing it off to one side equally I don't think it's particularly good for geographical information science that its engagement with geography is in many ways quite shallow and so mm. the the book is really about trying to you know, kind of mapping out a kind of a common ground, a, a sort of a shared set of uh, concepts and ideas yeah. that I think are important for both. And it, it it feels like this has been something that's been nagging you for a while. Um, <laughs> was it, we had an episode on, on hobby horses. Maybe this would be yours, perhaps. <laughs> um, do you, more specifically on the book, Do you can you think of a moment where it became clear in your mind this was going to be a book 
or and not only a book, but there's going to be your next book. Uh, uh-huh. Is there is there a point where things became a bit um, not narrowed down, but more more tangible? Yeah, I mean, I so I I mentioned that I was at the University of Auckland and then I moved to Berkeley. That was the the job. I got the job at Berkeley sometime in middle of 2013. Like it was all lined up that it was going to happen. Um, although it then got delayed because Berkeley has this complicated tenure thing that they. I was being appointed with tenure, and the committee that had to sit and review was on holiday or something, and things got delayed. And so instead of starting in sort of September of that year, I, it got pushed back to to January. Um, and so I was in this kind of strange limbo. I was still working at Auckland, but but I'd been, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, the next thing on my radar was, was starting at Berkeley. And I knew I was going to be teaching a kind of intro geospatial class of some kind. Um, and I was, oddly enough, it wasn't something I'd done up to that point. Uh, I'd always kind of got drafted in to do this sort of spatial analysis, the kind of advanced GIS or whatever, you know, whatever it might be called in different places. And I knew I wanted to do something different with it. Um, and I was also very conscious that, you know, Berkeley is a particular kind of, if there's a university I've worked at that is does not see itself as engaged in training, in any way, shape, or form, it's Berkeley. Berkeley is like very much an intellectual place, yeah. it, it, and and it did seem a bit weird to contemplate going there and teaching a kind of traditional intro GIS type course, which is very sort of hand, which was solely hands-on and and skills oriented. And so I thought, how do, how do you? And and it was at that point that I started thinking about this idea of well, why did GISers not get a bit more geographical thought in their training and how would that what would that look like and i think something that i've kind of failed to acknowledge in the book is uh, is and i kind of remembered it when we were having a kind of a pre i, I don't want to you know, pull back the curtain too much on the podcast yes. but but we did have a pre-chat about the reason this. why everything's so smooth in the yeah podcast. um <laughs> exactly and um uh, you asked this question and i thought Gosh, you know what? I actually forgot to mention uh, Peter Jackson. There's a very short paper, like a six-pager, called Geographical Thinking, or Thinking Geographically, in fact, um, in the journal Geography sometime in the early 2000s. And, you know, it was this kind of, I would like to talk about geographical thought in the context of of an intro geospatial course. Uh, What would that look like? How could I approach it? Um, on some level, what is even what even is geographical thought? And and in that short paper, Peter Jackson sort of sets out this idea that it's really about the concepts that geographers use to think about the world, and that was really the the kind of the core of the idea. And I mean, the concepts that Jackson mentions in the, his paper, not all of them even show up in the book. Explicitly, as uh, as such, and not all of them showed up in the course that I developed as such. But but you know, space and place are always going to make the cut. Mm. That, you know, if you're if you're thinking about geographical ideas and concepts, space and place are probably first and second picks. Um, scale, 
comes in at close uh, third. Um, and so it sort of started to come together. And the course that I developed had uh, five modules, uh, space, scale, place, um, time, and process was the five kind of big ideas. And each of the modules, there was a kind of an intro lecture, like a very quick overview of the, of the topic. And then assignments and so on, uh, you know, there were practical practical element. Actually, this was the other departure from the traditional GIS. It seemed like in 2013, 2014, that web mapping was the proper vehicle, mm. not GIS for introducing geospatial. And so the course got kind of built around that. And I guess after teaching it a couple of times, um, I thought, yeah, there's a, you know, there's a book here or there's a, there's a presentation of this way of thinking about um, geospatial hmm. that that could be could be valuable, useful for others, and which, as you as you say, it would it would kind of allow me to kind of get my hobby horse. And um, do you see it as primarily right. useful for people in GI science or or in sort of data related geography fields, or do you see it as useful to all of geography? <laughs> I mean, this is a I I would love to think that it was useful to all of geography. I suspect that the you know the gap that it it I'm I'm presenting it is yeah. attempting to bridge would will work against that aspiration on my part maybe over time I I think it's probably most easily thought of um, as a as a you know a primer on yeah. geographical thought for for GI essers more than it is a kind of a primer on geographical why, thought for why not more like why generally. not why not all geographers I totally I totally agree I, I I'm thinking just about this sort of sociology of it that like who's going to take this up and you know I, I suspect people um, uh, you know I, I've had a walk on part as a guest lecturer toward the end of a course in uh, Vic here in Wellington um, in a second year course which is about geographical thought and they use as I'm sure is the case you know the world over a book by Cresswell which oh. is ge oh, yeah, I can't remember even the yeah, title of yeah. a critical geographical thought a critical introduction something like that and um, and you know my assigned role in in guest lecturing in that course is to kind of rescue spatial science from the the, the darkness into which Cresswell yeah. casts <laughs> Cresswell sort of says you know been there done that spatial science was the 70s and we were past that now yeah. and this is a kind of one of the things the book is trying to do is to is to sort of say well you know there's a, actually a bunch of really interesting geographical thinking even if uh, geoscientists GISers aren't explicitly doing geographical thinking in their work they are engaging aspects of you know they're engaging big ideas and concepts in in their work and some of that kind of bleeds through and and so the book does try to um you know present these ideas from both perspectives i think i would yeah i think it could be used as an introduction i to think so too thought for a general audience that's one of the most interesting features of the book that i found when i was um having a look at it to prepare this episode that well, two things that 
on how it's structured. One, this idea that you've mentioned already, that it it's several chapters, I think it's seven, and then into conclusions of big picture ideas, uh, as in really big. It can't get any bigger in geography, space, place, location, projection, con uh, relations, flows, networks, and so on. Um, and then it, each chapter is then structured as the tradition in geographic thought about that area, how it's been um, presented, and then how GIS or geoscience has, uh, with lowercase, uh, has <laughs> incorporated it into the, its own um, its own framework. Mm -hmm. I suppose, well, two questions. The first one, which you've sort of anticipated, I thought it, in some ways you've kind of offloaded, but I, I think you're probably doing yourself a bit of a disservice in, in saying that it was all Peter Jackson, but if I, I, I was thinking, if I had to pick what are the core topics, I would have a really hard time and I would go back and forth and I would bunch them in different ways and then I would decide that some didn't need to be there and then I would regret that and bring them back as an <laughs> appendix of the appendix of the book or something like that. Mm -hmm. How how What was your, your process of thinking through what's going to make it into the book finally and why... Why a concept was big enough or not big enough to make it into the book? Honestly, I had no idea what my process was beyond actually just writing. <laughs> I, I, when I took the idea to uh, Guildford in, I think it was 2017, I think it was the AAG in Boston at 2017. It might have been the one before, but I think it was in Boston. Um, they sent me away as publishers do and said, well, you know, give us a, send us a, 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 a full proposal and at that point I had to kind of set out a list of, of, of topics that each chapter would focus on and like I said uh, space uh, I mean I have a hard time imagining a book about big yeah. ideas and geography that, that wouldn't attempt to cover space and place um, scale again also seems like a shoe in it's kind of mm. like you know how are you not going to cover that and and then it uh, you know uh, the, there's a chapter called lines and areas which is a slightly it's actually not a particularly satisfying chapter title but lines is semi a, a little bit of a nod in the direction of Matt Wilson's new lines so that there's this sort of um uh you know in that kind of critical GIS universe there's that yeah, and and lines and areas, boundaries, uh, and you know how how do we? I, there was a lot of back and forth of material between the chapter on place and the chap and that chapter, because mm -hmm. you know often places are bounded areas or regions, and, and lines get drawn on maps and they make places and and in fact there's quite a lot of there was, there was kind of shifting around of stuff between those two chapters. I mm -hmm. think the you know the modifiable area unit problem. <laughs> moved back and you know dithered yeah. <laughs> as the writing developed um time I, I i mean how can you not really again you know that's sort of up there um and i had wanted uh networks relations flows uh i think maybe if you manage to get all the way through to the end of the book you you'll know that i i'm keen that we Put, put that at the center of our geographical mm -hmm. thinking as, as you know i think um in a in a kind of theoretical sense um 
you know, geographical thinkers, whatever they are, um, have done. You know, relationality is a kind of a central theme yeah. that, that we yeah. keep running into. Um, and then process was process was sort of delivering a little. Well, it's partly picking up on we talked about my uh, you know my long-standing concern. You know, the subtitle of spatial simulation is exploring pattern and process. So process has been an abiding interest, but but I'd never really grappled with um, process thinking and process philosophy at all. And I kind of wanted to do that. I made a rash promise at a at a um, we had a there was a there was a Berkeley uh, you know coffee hour talk where like three faculty got up and talked about what they were working on or thinking about in the near future and I made a rash uh, uh, promise that I was going to try and think figure out what it would mean to think pros do process thinking in GI science and so I sort of felt obliged to uh, I I. Long since departed Berkeley by the time I was writing it, but I kind of felt obligated to that. Uh, I think there's a YouTube <laughs> video even of me making that promise. So it's, it's, it's out there. But it, I know, I, I mean, I was really pleased that I went there um, because it actually is pretty fascinating that, you know, trying to think about the world as process all the way down as opposed to things and, and beginning to think of things not as things, but as as that which can you know we what is whitehead's phrase i i quote it several times there it is again a, a thing is that you know a thing a thing becomes a thing by virtue of us being able to point it at something on, in a process and go there it is again um and that really kind of brought it full circle back to the importance of pattern from from me anyway um so that they sort of sort of picked themselves in a way and a lot of it this was a book far more than the previous two books that that sort of worked itself out in the writing you know i i kind of knew roughly where i was going but i didn't know you know which parts of of the various parts of the geographical thought literature i was gonna you know where i would stop like for example, yeah. in the writing about scale, for yeah. example, I knew there had been a period, roughly contemporary with my PhD and into my first uh, job, where human geographers have been frantically arguing with one another about scale and social construction of scale, and uh, and I'd never read it at all. Kind of been happening, kind of over there. I kind of was aware of it, and I'd never really read it, and. And, you know, it wasn't until I started really looking at it to write this, that chapter that, that a, it, a kind of where to start, where that journey yeah. would start and where, where I thought it stopped being useful or where it had, I felt like thought had kind of stabilized enough to, to sort of say, okay, I'm done here and now let's look at GI science and scale. Yeah, and then the the final thing I'll say about the book and the and how it's structured is that it's relatively few number of chapters compared to a normal textbook. It's about, as I said, seven or or nine. Seven core, and they're all, yeah. yeah, and they're all really big pictures. But for the audience that shouldn't 
to track you to think that is not contemporary. The, I think one of the things that I found most interesting is how you managed to then use this as a skeleton to kind of stuff in all sorts of different debates that, that were going on, but also there are going on. Of course, there's the MAUP and so on makes an appearance in there, but also um, the chapter on time has all the discussion on mobility and, and mm-hmm. which is sort of a more contemporary interpretation. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting framing to then start plugging in debates that have happened and that are still going on. And, and of course, then all the complexity um, line of thought, which is kind of in some ways runs parallel and then kind of gets in and out and, and in and out as you were, mm-hmm. as you were saying, but it's super interesting. And it's, it's fascinating to find out how this gets, gets made. Maybe I should try to write more to see if great structures come out. I was really keen in putting it together to, you know, to show that a lot of these ideas have deep roots. I mean, I think it's, yeah. I think a real problem of, of, in the academy these days is that, you know, anything that's older than five years is, you know, forgotten. It's, it's forgotten. And, and, you know, these, these conversations and debates have been going on for 50 years and, uh, you know, these big kind of existential arguments and questions about what is geography about and what are we interested in and why. And, you know, in some ways, you know, we've not necessarily made progress, but that's okay because the progress, you know, it's the journey that's the mm-hmm. is the thing. Uh, and I think that's a really, I hope that's a useful journey for students to, to take too. You know, that I mean, that's presumably what, you know, becoming a geographer is about. Yeah, I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about what's in the book, and I'm kind of curious about sort of where we start with the title. I'm curious about the computing geographically piece, but I'd really like to start with the the metaphor of the bridge building because because I like it. I like the idea of building bridges, but it sort of assumes that there is territory on either side of of the water. And I wonder Uh if we could talk a little bit about how we draw these boundaries, which I think is appropriate for talking about a book like this. So, so Uh what, for example, what is, what's GI science and how does it sit apart from human geography? (laughs) Well, you know, I, what's a discipline? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it, it, there's as much, these things are as much, I guess, sociological as they are intellectual, Mm. the, you know, they're kind of communities and tribes and, collections of people their conference series and journals and and uh, you know the all the agglomeration of things i think the um what i said before about you know there's an awful lot of common ground between these particular supposedly separate fields uh which the book is kind of drawing attention to um and the bridging i mean the bridging really comes from my own, I, where I kind of come in on this and probably where um, this, like the deeper roots even than the course at Berkeley and, and all of what I was talking about before are when I, I wrote a, a Progress in Human Geography review of Critical GIS in 2006 or 2007, I, I can't remember, you you get asked to do those reviews for kind of a three-year stint. And uh, 
Yeah, I think the second one that I wrote was Critical GIS. And that was kind of my, I, I had sort of become aware of this Critical GIS thing, hadn't really been paying an awful lot of attention to it. Those, if you ever get asked to do those reviews, it's great. It's a great way of making yourself like engage stuff that you know has been going on, but you've not really been fully uh, paying attention to. Um, and the, I then, as a result of writing that, a couple of years later got invited to uh, the AG in Boston to uh, a, a session organized by Matt Wilson, who at the time was a graduate student at Washington. He's now, of course, a professor at Kentucky. Um, and it was called Straddling the Fence, which is a sort of really awkward phrase that shows up in a in a an interview Nadine Sherman did with Mike Goodchild about, uh, I mean, Critical GIS kind of in its contemporary manifestation as it were emerges out of Nadine Sherman's PhD um, and she interviewed Mike Goodchild among others and Mike Goodchild uses this phrase straddling the fence for the, the this this bridging I guess that I'm talking about you know the, the, he, he suggests that straddling the fence would be a, and that just felt feels awkward and unpleasant and bridging just seems like a nicer metaphor and and subsequently, I find myself um, not for a few years now because I haven't been at an AEG for a while. Um, partly COVID, partly being in New Zealand. Um, uh, I find myself as one of the very few people who's kind of in sessions on on both sides of that um, fence. Fence. Or, or chasm, or river, or whatever it is, this thing that we're bridging, and and I've kind of felt that that that's been a role that the discipline has to some extent assigned to me, <laughs> or I've taken it up. So you uh, you don't feel that that's primarily sociological, as you say, in the sense that you get along with some groups and you don't others. You you see it as something that's assigned to you. Um, I don't mean. I mean, assigned makes it sound like you know somebody has designated it from on high or something like that. But, but I, I, I guess there's some of this in the book in the first chapter, which would be, might be interest. I would be interested to hear your reactions to the first chapter, because that was one of the ones that was quite tricky to write. It, it's sort of autobiographical. I mean, not for very long because it was horribly strange to find myself writing in that mode um but but uh, you know casa ucl which was fabulous and great but it was a very 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 kind of quantitatively computationally focused it's ostensibly interdisciplinary research center associated with geography and architecture and computer science and archaeology and I don't know, it's probably no longer, that's no longer its remit, but that's how it started. But it, it had absolutely nothing to do with the geography department at UCL. Like literally yeah. nothing to do with the geography department. It was so strange. And and then I went to Penn State and I was one of uh, like half a dozen, I was like, the, I don't know, the fifth of six assistant professors that had been hired over a period of about four or five years and they were kind of my cohort in terms of like we hung out together we all agonized over tenure and like 
and you know went to angstrom parties and uh, all, all of that um and they were you know they're all lovely people all quite brilliant i and i had as much in common with them as i had with uh, with you know my gis cohort people mm-hmm. people <laughs> and and i just thought this is and, and so i think that was what sort of equipped me to be that person in in a certain sense um so there was a kind of weird accident to it but i i guess it was also an openness on my part you know i and maybe this is partly coming in from the outside into geography and going well, what's this geography thing um in a in a uk phd program where you don't do any coursework and i think well there's a library over there maybe i'll go figure out what geography I think, is i mean for, for me it's it's partly right. thinking about the what what do we think of as human geography that's on one side and then this gi science piece and i just i'm interested in how from my perspective it feels that gi science has colonized anything that would have been quantitative in human geography so that that is what is on that side of the territory because you're not thinking about building bridges from say gi science to population, just to draw an example that would fit with me, because we assume that population is mm, already, mm. it's already contained in the, in the GI science. And, and the example I would give would be if, if you're thinking about the American Association of Geographers, mm. AAG, which we keep referencing, and which is sort of like the main learned society for mm. geographers, we have a GI science group, but we also have a spatial analysis and modeling group, specialty group, right? And so these two continue. And to this yeah. day, you have to avoid, you know, co-scheduling scheduling conflicts between what is considered GI science and what's considered <laughs> spatial analysis and modeling. And it's almost redundant. I would guess that the overlap of membership of those groups um, is substantial. Yeah. And so, and so I'm just kind of yeah. curious about how did we get to the point from your perspective where anything quantitative in the entire discipline of geography, except for physical geography, is GI, is GI science. Uh-huh. Indeed. And, and is it meaningful? Yeah, I th- that's a really good, I, a really good question, and it's actually the one. It's the question I was kind of ducking in writing chapter one in the way that I ended up writing it, because I, given over the sort of years while this book was gestating, um, I gave a number of talks. Most of them have the mm-hmm. word bridging somewhere in the title. Um, I might even have given an early version of it. Danny in Liverpool. Liverpool. Occasional um, lecture, we called it. Back in, uh, I don't know, 2015 or 16 or whatever. And um, the, and I, I kind of, I kind of posed that question and it was a question I kind of wanted to answer, but kind yeah. of find myself unable to when it actually came to sitting down to try and write it. And it was to do, and I posed the question in a very a slightly cheeky way. I kind of, although I softened the blow, I think by putting myself in the same box. I, I, I kind of asked the question like, how is it that we have all these old uh, texts from the 60s and 70s, like Haggett and Chorley and, and you know, that you leaf through them yeah. and they've got all these fascinating diagrams and pictures. And, and then we have GIS textbooks. And GIS textbooks are like these kind of, I mean, no, no offense intended to to people who've written those books. I know how hard writing books is, and and they they have a purpose and a role. And you know, I've used some of them, and 
uh, and I'm not going to name names or anything like that. But and you know, I Matt Duckham has a has a new edition of Computer uh, GIS, a Computing Perspective coming out pretty much right now, which is a fabulous book and. Albeit a slightly different one from the kind of run-of-the-mill GIS text, um, but but that was the way I would pose this question in those talks. It was like, how come sixties and seventies quantitative geography looked like this, and now it looks like this this kind of we've flattened it out into what GIS does. The things that GIS does is what quantitative geography, as we teach it to students, has become. That's what it's become. And and that's a really limited way of thinking about geography, and that's kind of the other. Uh, and so the book that I was wanting to kind of go there in chapter yeah. one of the book as the kind of setting it up, and I just felt I can't, I don't know how this happened, and if I can't really even explain it to myself, I'm not going to spend ten pages. Yeah making up stories about yeah. what happened. I mean, I, I think it seems like a relevant <laughs> question for, we're in early 2024 when we're recording this, um, thinking about where urban analytics, geographic data science is the one I'm really thinking mm. of here. Like, what do we do with these new terms, new fields? Are they substitutes for GI science or are they some new territory that gets carved? And do we need to be thinking about a whole bunch of bridges for a whole bunch of canals? Like, where are we? <laughs> And when will Euler come along and solve the problem, the bridge <laughs> problem for us? Um, I think the uh, is there a walk <laughs> without, without retracing our steps across all those bridges? Um, I think um, that's for the network nerds out there. Um, I think the other subfield that fulfills that role for me has been geocomputation. And if you look at some of the writing about geocomputation conferences over the years, like there's like editorial pieces appear. Um, there's one recent, there's not recently, no, it's I don't know, 2017 or 2016 or something. Um, Rich Harris organized it. Um, I have a section, Chris Bunsen, Mark Charlton, uh, Mark Kagan, there's a, you know, the great and the good, as it were, have written a little think piece in there about what, you know, what's the deal with geocomputation? Has it accomplished anything? What is it anyway? Um, and these things kind of come and go. And I think a lot of them are about, are kind of expressing a certain frustration, if not with GI mm. science, <coughs> with GIS, certainly. Mark Egan has been very consistent in sort of arguing that he he has a piece called Our GIS is Too Small, where he's kind of like, it's just far too narrowly focused on it. And, you know, there are reasons for that. GIS is a, is a you know, it's a corporate technology aimed at corporate actors, you know, local government and, yeah. and the military and all these other players. And they don't need a tool for explaining the world geographically they need a tool for managing infrastructure and and you know putting road center lines in the right place and making cadastral maps and you know and gis does all those things really well it just doesn't yeah. do geographical <laughs> thinking very well and so gi gi science you can look at you know if you go back to the 1992 mike goodchild paper which you know initiates geographical information mm. science ostensibly um, and very quickly sees the journals get renamed. Um, 
you know, International Journal of Geographical Information Systems becomes information science. Um, you know, that's a kind of one attempt to, to kind of get out of the, uh, you know, GIS is just this tool that we use yeah. box. Geocomputation is another, which kind of broadens it out to kind of computation more, more generally. Um, I think, I think, I think of geographical data science, spatial data science as being in the same mold. All, all of these things to some extent are, are trying to break out of yeah. that box. If I may chip in, I think to me, it's sort of the same process sort of <laughs> point to it at different points in time that, and it's almost a way of in some ways trying to broaden what GIS or geoscience you think it should be at some point, but sometimes it's easier to give it a new name than to redefine something that's <laughs> been there for the, a long time and yeah. hasn't out chairs on that one thing. And, yeah. and so, yeah. so yeah. Least, certainly for geographic data science that I'm probably a bit closer, it's, it's not, I don't think it should replace. And, and if anything, it's almost mm. the opposite. I think it should be swallowed. That would be the ultimate success of, of the discipline. But, um, but sometimes, um, Hadley Wickham has this thought piece where he basically says, you know, the success of data science is that it didn't have any any baggage. So, you know, I would love for statistics to have done right. this, but sometimes it's earlier to start something from scratch than to rewrite something that's already on the page. So, you know, maybe let's try. Yeah. And and I think geocomputation makes sense. I wasn't there 30 years ago. I'm uh, going to give myself a pat <laughs> on the back for being too young for that. No, no, no was uh, I. <laughs> but I think um, it was that that point in time where computers become something that you could do more than just spreadsheets, and and then you start thinking what it is that you could do, and and you know what was there isn't. So you you have to find something else, and you you, yeah. you give it a new name because you also need a new career, and you need a you know your your well, whatever sort of place whatever in the world. we call it, whether we call it GI yeah. science or geographical data science or geocomputation, you have this phrase in the preface of your book, David, that says that refers being sometimes underwhelmed by actually existing geographical computing. Uh, and I wondered if we could just spend a couple of minutes. I know Levi has lots and lots of <laughs> questions for you, and we want to make sure we give ample time time to those. But I, I just okay. So okay. So where are we? What's our problem? If we could diagnose the problem, and how do we fix it? If you've got any uh -huh. ideas, how do we make ourselves at least whelmed, if not like you know over overwhelmed? But how do we make ourselves? <laughs> I'd love to be overwhelmed. Overwhelmed would, would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, one of the one of the things about writing a book, and one of the and the, you know, I know this is kind of leaning a little bit into where Levi's questions might go too, is you do get to be, you know, a little bit. You don't have a peer reviewer telling you that you can't say that and that you don't, you know, where's the citation? So I can be as underwhelmed as I like. I, I would say sometimes is a key phrase there. I'm sometimes underwhelmed. I'm not always underwhelmed. So that's just like a little, you know, let me off the hook a little bit. I think, and I think just thinking about it, uh, thinking about it, it it's probably, uh, you know, the, the positive spin on it is, it, is, is, it, it, you know the uh, Thomas Kuhn and the scientific revolutions, and you have the you know you have the upheaval, and then you just do it. Science it becomes normal science, and maybe normal science is kind of a bit boring. 
and not very over not overwhelming it's just kind of okay you know it 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 so it goes kind of thing um i think that the the i'm a little more underwhelmed now than i used to be and i think that's two things one of them is you know you get a bit older and you're not as up to speed with what's going on so you know the latest iteration on graph convolutional neural networks and you know with extra parameters that gives you a, a 0.2 percent improvement in whatever um when you're not even 100 percent sure what they're doing anyway and what it's even a tweak all all you know what the little tweak is a tweak of it, it's you know it's easy to one way to react to that is to be underwhelmed, like, oh, you know, whatever, I'm sure. Um, so that, I, and so I think, I, I, to, I'd be a little bit more serious about it. I think that the thing, it, I'm not always clear what questions people are trying to address when we I read those papers. They're, they're very focused on like that marginal improvement in some measure of predictive quality or fit or whatever it is and I'm like okay well but you know show me a geographical question where this matters like what where that tiny little improvement in yeah. performance in some sense makes a difference to our ability to understand yeah. the world and that's what leaves me a little bit cold um, and maybe that's inevitable I, I don't know I, I you know maybe it is Maybe it feels like maybe don't we have the tools now? Could we maybe turn our attention to the questions and go back and talk to our geography colleagues? And <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's pretty it's much how I feel. It's yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's not the computation that's um, the problem. But how? So how do we fix it though? Well, I guess in some ways the book kind of attempts to do that by I mean one of the arguments implicit in the book I don't know if I make it explicit at any point is that if if the if the you know the new GI scientists or GISers or geocomputationalists or whatever we call them that we're putting out in the world were were better grounded in geographical thought then they'd be better placed to go have those conversations with colleagues in other parts of the discipline and say look I can I've got a Thing here. I, I understand what you're talking about, as opposed to the 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 world that I grew up in, as it were, where where you know it was people expressing complete either ambivalence or just di or disinterest or total incomprehension of what their colleagues in other parts of geography were talking about. The only thing I would say is that I think we have questions people who are in the quantitative space yeah. also, and that and that I don't like the idea that we've somehow um, given all of the question concern with with the big no, things no, I, I, I don't, something I, that is not yeah. our field because I think we have because I. I am passionate about the idea that if we just look, maybe not necessarily in what we would call GI science, but geography. certainly in quantitative geography, quantitative human geography, we have we have so many questions, yeah. people, and 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 you have to really dig to find their work. And I, I'm looking at Levi on the screen, and I'm thinking, yeah. David Manley, like yeah. they do great work, like like 
it's interesting. It's interesting computationally. It's interesting from a data perspective, and it's about interesting questions. Mm-hmm. It's not just like whether it's you know world challenges. It's also just like this is yeah. really interesting to to think about. How do you answer this question? Yeah, and I think I think what's also interesting uh, too is that you know that you look at this, you know the the careers of some of the folks from way back when, and quite a few of the you know the core uh, quantitative geographers from the 70s and 80s totally ignored gis did just didn't engage it like a bunch did and that's you know where you know they in some sense have come to dominate on how we educate students in quantitative geography um but a bunch didn't did not i mean i particularly think of peter gould in that being in that space like he did all this like as far as i can tell anywhere there's nowhere in his published output is any sense that he ever used went near a gis um and i think that's really interesting like he found no need for it didn't think it was apparently didn't think it was particularly interesting um based on the published record and yet did really fascinating work studying all kinds of exploring all kinds of geographical questions. So getting back to the book a little bit then, you've written quite a few books at this point, right? You've, you've mentioned uh, two other ones. Well, sure, but that's quite, that's a, that's a few. I, I guess I wonder, <laughs> speaking of these kinds of bigger ideas, and, and a li- we've talked a little bit about kind of where the book came from, from your teaching at Berkeley, but I guess why the book? Why, why write it like this and maybe not like a sequence of articles or in, as you mentioned in those uh, review why why write books like this? I think I mean this was something I I learned really early in my career, and I went against advice of my first head of department when I was on the tenure track at Penn State. I was already halfway through writing my first book with Dave Umlin, Geographic Information Analysis, and I proudly told him that at the first meeting where we were there, you know to discuss well what are your plans for you know, the tenure process, what are you working on? And I, I've got a, working on a book, it should it'll probably be done by, I don't know, next year sometime. And, and I thought, this is great. And he was like, mm, don't, do not do that. That's a really bad idea. Yeah. And that was my first sort of, I, I just thought, this is great. You know, and the reason it's a bad idea is that it's a high risk. You know, it takes a long time. It, how many papers could you write in the same time that it takes you to write a book and you know the papers might not be widely read or they might not be great but they'll you know they kind of add up and they you accumulate a cv in that way a book is like a, a, a like a like a, a risk in, a, in that sense um but you know i don't know about you guys but my i suspect you all love books i think you've talked about books in a previous episode um and i i'm the same and i i think it's books that make i mean maybe not mathematics maybe not a couple a couple of other disciplines where you know you can accumulate theorems over time that that's how the discipline develops but most fields books are 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 you know how we know what we're about um so it always felt so there was that uh, there was that aspiration to write a book for that reason. The other reason, I writing papers is 
you know, it's kind of what we do, but it's sort of drudgery and it's sort of impersonal and it's kind of, you know, the, you don't get to write what you want. You, you get reviewer number two telling you that, you you know, all the, all these boxes you have to tick and, and this sort of impersonal, you know, there's not an awful lot of space for the author's voice and there's not an awful lot of, um, room for kind of self-expression and depending on the journal it's all in the passive voice and you know all of those things are really aggravating as a writer i mean i don't know that i'm a writer as such but but i just find the space that a book allows in all of those ways to just be an awful lot more um rewarding well and it sounds like Um, maybe fun to write as well yeah fun Mostly fun, <laughs> I, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, I tried to have fun with it. Um, I think the footnotes are are almost all, I mean, a few of them are informational, but most of them are little. Oh, I love footnotes. You do like footnotes. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't. <laughs> I would have to take it to another publisher if they wouldn't let me have footnotes. Like footnotes on the page, so you can just... That's done. Not not so you have to have two bookmarks yeah. and um yeah I I love a good footnote. Footnotes are so great for like you you read so much stuff along the way and mm. you know and you'd love to put it all in there but you can't put all of it in there. Like there's so many rabbit holes that you sort of disappeared on and and so the footnotes are one way of just you know nudging readers in the direction of some of the rabbit holes. And also sharing little snippets of, you know, biographical information, which it amuses me to somehow to put in there. And um, where the, I mean, one of the reviewers that Guilford sent it to said something about it feeling like having a conversation with the author. And I mean, I hope that that is what it feels like because and so that's again about the voice. Um, you know, I, I don't, th- you come away from this, you know that I'm from Ireland, you know that I live in Wellington. If you're paying attention, you can tell that some parts were written while I was still in Berkeley and some parts were written when I was in a different suburb in Wellington called Northland. And, uh, you know, I have a soft spot for Jarvis Cocker, Common People, the Pope song and you know <laughs> there's just little you can sort of <laughs> put those in there and you can you can never do that in an, an article i've i've tried to do little bits and sure. bulbs like that in articles like the multi python quote in one of my early papers but for the most part you can't get away with that stuff um uh, so as a, an author of a book you have so much more leeway but i the, the real reason is that i think that they are the they are how we know ourselves as disciplines. Like it's books that people will still pay attention to. Twenty, you know, twenty. I mean, I'm still talking about Haggett and Chorley, yeah. in like what forty, fifty, fifty years later. Um, I don't think yeah. how many papers last that long. Very few, one would think. So I guess when we're thinking about <clears throat> kind of. Uh, you've mentioned uh, some of the chapters, I think in particular the place and the lines and areas when kind of finding a lot of material that, that 
maybe fit in one and then fit in the other, shifting back and forth. Was there any part that was actually kind of difficult or challenging to pin down when you were writing the book? The space and scale chapters, they didn't write themselves, but they were pretty, the, the kind of general plan that I had of, of overview of the geographical thinking and then turning to the GI science stuff, that template worked really well for those two topics. And I had those chapters, not in their final form, but, but, but very, really quite early. And the time geography stuff, once I find that kind of really fascinating, I think, connection between time geography and early feminist geography, and I had a whole, a kind of a, a frame that I could put that stuff into, which wasn't quite the same as the geographical thought, geoscience frame, but it, it, it almost actually the other way around. It was like time geography is sort of front and center in that chapter, and that is part of the quantitative tradition um but place was really difficult those i mean and the reason some of the stuff kept moving around was was the difficulty of really pinning down what i was getting at and it, it i i i mean it's all a bit of a blur now and i didn't keep a diary or anything but although i did have it in github so i could mm. probably i could probably unpack <laughs> how, how it happened but anyway the the um the place stuff took a long time to take shape and it wasn't until I I sort of and it was partly because it was just I think a lot of these areas of thought I wouldn't say the ge geographical thought was settled but it 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 it's sort of stabilized enough place is a topic that's just a perennial like it's never going away um, I mean, I have a little dig at Mike Goodchild's perplexity at, you know, what does this thing even mean in the chapter? But, you know, he's totally right. Like, we don't have a, like, the, what's the elevator definition, the elevator pitch definition <laughs> place. of place? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like, it's it's just, you know, this vast, like, it's everything and, and nothing all at once. And... Um, it wasn't until I sort of thought, okay, I need to sort of grasp this nettle and actually read Yifu Tuan and have a look at, at some of these texts and, and really sort of get to grips with it that I can sort of put some shape on it that, that I can... And, and intriguingly, I mean, and really encouragingly, I think some of the most interesting new stuff in, in GI science is happening in that space. The, you know, there's that palatial conference series and people are do seem to be sort of trying to grapple with this idea that there's some um, kind of fuzzier more elusive way in which we organize the world ge as geographers through this notion of place that isn't xy coordinates and location and Euclidean geometry it's this much more uh, much richer but also much more you know it's much harder to pin down, but people are people are kind of making some headway there, and I think that's really exciting. But uh, yeah, the place was tricky. Um, most of the rest of it, you know, once I, you know, discipline myself to sit down and actually get <laughs> on with it, which was very much a there was a whole, uh, you know, through the book I we move countries. Yeah. Um, I started a new job, had to, you know, write new course materials. I, um, COVID happened. <laughs> um, 
Sorry, was COVID a break or a boost? Well, COVID was a. Yeah. It didn't really advance the book very mm. much because the teaching was. Uh, what yeah. did it was I had a sabbatical in the second half of 2022. I had disappeared off my publisher's right. Classic sort of. I'd gone silent on my editor. She'd gone silent on me as well. Um, yeah. For, I I checked in every year, <laughs> but I was well I was well Greetings. past you know <laughs> any any notional deadline. But I at some point, I knew that I was going to have the second half of 2022 sabbatical, and because of co actually, COVID gets a nod for this reason. And this reason alone, that meant that New Zealand, New Zealand universities use sabbatical as a way of connecting their academics to the world outside. So we have to have travel plans to go overseas to get the leave, and you know connect with you know our ostensibly great colleagues elsewhere. Um, but we were we were allowed not to do that because of COVID. So you didn't have to have a plan to go anywhere. You could just say, I'm going to write, I'm staying home and I'm writing a book. Give me leave. And uh, I'd gotten, I knew I was going to have that leave. I got in touch with my editor and said, look, I, I already have, I don't know, 35% of it. I had the space and scale chapters and bits and pieces of other chapters, but most of it still needs writing. Um, and so those six months, as it as it ended up being were very much like I did the writer thing I I don't think she's here anymore but the cat it was kind of amusing once the cat got used to the idea that I was going to be here every day she would insist on me getting to my desk like she'd come <laughs> and get me so that we could hang out in this room together and um so I was writing every day I didn't have a, you know, I didn't give myself a word. Um, I did count the words periodically just to make sure I was actually making progress and not I was adding more than I was taking away. Um, but the first chapter was a, a big stumbling block for a long time. Sure. That was just sort of sitting there not written for months. So the previous two books got published by different bits of different parts of Wiley, one by Wiley in the US, one by Wiley in the UK. If you're wondering why there's never been a third edition of Geographic Information Analysis, it's because Dave Unman and I would really like to extract it from Wiley and do something different with it. And we can't, like they have copyright and they're like, oh, well, we'll, we'll let you, if you want to write another edition, we'll, they, they, they do this very sort of, we'll, we'll push it for a year while it's new and get people to buy it and get libraries to buy it. And then we'll lose all interest in it and forget it even exists. And then it will become, you know, print on demand and 180 bucks a copy or whatever ridiculous price it is. And we wanted, we watched the Sage quant geography publications come out and we're like, that's what geographic information analysis should be. We want our book back, but we can't get it back. Um, and Wiley have, you know, so I wanted a smaller press that would, maybe be a bit more in love with the book. Um, but then when I started to think about this weird space between GIA science and geography, there's not many publishers in that. And Guildford were the only one that really came to mind. Like how maps work is Guildford. 
Grand Truth is Guilford. And there's two or three others that are in that sort of, it's terrible, terribly authorial or liminal space between um, geography and GIS. And, and so they seemed like the people I should go talk to. And Deborah Lawton um, was very receptive. I don't know if she'd have been as receptive if I hadn't been at Berkeley at the time, if I'd been a sort of blow-in from New Zealand. I'm not sure. sure. I, I think she might have been persuaded. Um, I think being at Berkeley probably helped. But um, because it is a odd sort of a book, I think. <laughs> probably an odd book. I, and and so they've it's been great working with them. I mean the only the only glitch working with them has been the one that uh, I think is probably only not a glitch if you work with Springer, which is I wanted to write in LaTeX and uh, I think Springer are the only publisher that know what LaTeX is. CRC are pretty good. CRC are good, yeah. are they? Okay, noted for future reference <laughs> because um, and I don't know why I wanted I wrote my thesis in LaTeX and the second book in LaTeX and you know you can version it and rewind it back a couple of notches if you feel or you think I had this right like three days ago I can go back and retrieve the text from three days ago and I don't have to have that sort of word thing where you're sure. making a new copy every day for months on end and then you have no idea where so and and then as luck would have it LaTeX um, LaTeX really doesn't deliver on the promise it makes that you won't care about what it looks like. You'll you'll just write it and and trust to Professor Knuth that it will look right. <laughs> uh, it really doesn't deliver on that promise because you constantly. Uh, but it actually got me over the hump of blank page because the. I mean, this is very super nerdy at this point, but the the LaTeX package I was using, which is called Memoir, which is for writing big documents book-length documents, does all the pre all the table of contents and lists of figures and all and the index, all the, all the, and even when I had very, very few words, I still had like a 20-page document, which made me feel like, <laughs> oh, I'm getting somewhere. It, it kind of got me, it got me past the, the sort of, oh my God, this is like so much to, to write. Um, because I've not written alone before, not written a book on my own mm -hmm. before. I don't know if I'd do it again. Um, I see. That was much yeah. harder than writing, writing with a co-author. Ah. Writing with a co-author is a very different experience. You know, I guess it's obvious it's a, it's a much more lonely experience. Sure. And when you're stuck, you're stuck. Yeah. Like it's on you and, you know, you have to dig yourself out of it. When I finish a big project or, or you know, finish writing a book, there's always you know, something next, something that I'm looking forward to doing after I've gotten this big thing done. For you, is there any any kind of thing that you're looking forward to now? What's next? <laughs> well, you find me, the, this podcast finds me at a crossroads. <laughs> I, honestly, the book, putting the, writing the book, uh, which, as I say, the bulk of the hard work was done at the tail end of 2022. 2023 saw me kind of returning to a couple of, long-standing projects in collaboration with Luke Bergman, which are, um, which Levi, you've seen some of the, some of that. Um, one of them is about generalized projections and which is actually getting into this kind of relational spaces stuff that's in the book. And then the other one is a completely off the wall, but very much reflects my sort of visual pattern 
obsessions tiles. which is about tiles on maps um it's a kind of a there's a there's a, rep, a github repo that you can look at called weaving space if anybody wants to check out what that's about but it's it's this it's about using tiling as a way of presenting multivariate data on maps it's weird and quirky and it's uh, it provides some genuine insight into the very 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 shaky foundations of um of geospatial analysis because for some reason or other we use floating point uh coordinates and floating uh, anyway that's a whole <laughs> rabbit hole we don't need to go there right now but uh floating point uh, calculations and precision geometry are not compatible with one another uh, if you're interested in topology so those have been the things that I've been kind of work and I haven't got another big project lined up and then um, what should happen but um, my current employer has decided that uh, to make me redundant and so I I don't have to have a project <laughs> in the sense of like I'm I I, I don't have a, a, a clear academic future at this point and i'm not at this point entirely sure that i want one we're kind of keen to stay in new zealand new zealand only has a small number of universities so it's not entirely clear that there's a a place for me elsewhere in new zealand uh, while remaining an academic and i haven't we haven't really quite decided how far we would be prepared to move or where we might be prepared to move to if if the choice were, if the decision were that David absolutely has to remain in academia because that's, you know, his mission in life. So I've, I'm at a, very much at a crossroads in that sense. But in terms of, you know, ongoing projects, there's that relational projections and tiling maps stuff. Yeah. If I can get Luke Bergman, if I can talk him down from his uh, slightly perfectionist, it's it's interesting to contemplating an existence outside of academia. Potentially, there's an element of uh, I can begin to see some of how we are perceived by the outside in the sense of I'm kind of going look, Luke. I'm not sure I want to work on this for fun. If I'm, you know, if I if I'm the geospatial analyst at the New Zealand Health Authority, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know if I'm going to do this on the weekends. Um, could we just finish it? Could we just could we just you know get something out there? Um, yeah. uh, but you know, Luke is a consummate academic and sure. is uh, sticking to his guns that we've got to get it right. Um, and I'm like the impatient engineer <laughs> saying it works. It works already. <laughs> well, I have to say, I have to say that yeah. I think that you'd be missed. And so I hope that you stick around. Well, that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> yeah, I would miss, I, I think I would miss, I mean, I'm going to be at the AAG in Hawaii in April. There are a couple of author meets critics sessions about the book that are being organized. I think Rachel is going to be one of my erstwhile critics Indeed, at one of those two sessions. And I just don't know. I mean, it, it's, it, what's that? Three months away. Um, that could be the, you know, the swan song mic drop, <laughs> or it could be the kind of, 
oh my goodness, I so have to be doing this. This is my, you know, very life, my life and blood, my life yeah. blood, blah, 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 blah. Um, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, as soon as you start to think about other things, so, you know, we all know, I mean, this podcast talks about many of the frustrations of yeah. academic life. On the other hand, it also talks, celebrates some of the joys of academic life and you know it's so I, i'm on the crossroads i'm at a crossroads in that sense <laughs> for reasons beyond my control yes so we can we can talk about pull factors but sometimes in our lives the push yeah. factors also make themselves seen um i think that geography and gi science will be the poorer so my, <laughs> my fingers are crossed um but with that i think we slowly have to close the episode. I hope for our listeners, if you stuck with us, I'm looking at my screen and I think we're going to come in at about an hour and 20 minutes for this episode. So if you stuck with <laughs> us in one go, I hope it was as fun listening for us um, recording. <laughs> and hey, we're into our second year of GLAD. Wow. Who'd have thought? <laughs> yeah. So we've got some ideas of what to do with the coming year, um, but we'd love to hear from you. Um, potential topics, stuff you'd like to hear more about, what stuff you'd like to hear less about. And we've got a way for you to contact us. Um, you're welcome to send feedback, episode suggestions. As I said before, we love it if the feedback is constructive so that we know what to do with your thoughts. Um, or just laudatory. We love to hear good things about what we're doing because this is not part of our jobs. We do this for fun. So anyway, contact us at the Glad Podcast. It's all one word at gmail.com. And the other thing you can do if you're bored some evening or some morning sitting around, maybe on your morning commute, you can review us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This really helps because it turns out, you may have heard, we live in an algorithmic world. Uh, and so the more you can like us and the more you can review us, the more likely it is that other people who might like us and review us will see that we exist. Um, and for that, I think that's it with this episode. We're glad you're here.